You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. And welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 404 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, June 5th, 2022. And the subject of this podcast episode is all that is in God, evangelical theology and the challenge of classical Christian theism by James E. Dolezal. This is a work I was introduced to by my neighbor, Two Houses Down, J.P. Chavez, John Paul, if you prefer, those who know him well, certainly his parents. I don't know how many of the rest of the people in his life refer to him as John Paul, but every now and then when I'm feeling popish, I call him John Paul instead of J.P. (laughs) But in any event, he recommended this book, and uh, he's not the Pope, and he's not a papist. but he is a good person to talk with about theology and very interested in the subject. So when he recommended this book to me, I was very interested to read it. All that is in God, that's a big subject. It's a very, very big subject. And James E. Dolezal did, I think, a fine job. Uh, I was dizzied by his intellect. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect, James E. Dolezal. But from Goodreads, the book summary for this work is as follows, and I quote, Unknown to many, increasing numbers of conservative evangelicals are denying basic tenets of classical Christian teaching about God, with departures occurring even among those of the Calvinistic persuasion. James E. Dolezal's All That Is in God provides an exposition of the historic Christian position while engaging with these contemporary deviations. His convincing critique of the newer position he styles theistic mutualism is philosophically robust, systematically nuanced, and biblically based. It demonstrates the need to maintain the traditional viewpoint, particularly on divine simplicity, and spotlights the unfortunate implications for other important Christian doctrines such as divine eternality and the Trinity if it were to be abandoned, arguing carefully and cogently that all that is in God is God himself, the work is sure to stimulate debate on the issue in years to come, end quote. Also too, interestingly enough, I could not find an author summary on Goodreads. That book summary came from Goodreads, but I couldn't find an author summary, but I did find a short blurb about Dolezal from Table Talk magazine, and it reads as follows. Dr. James E. Dolezal is director and professor of theology at Radius Theological Institute in Bakersfield, California, and also teaches in the School of Divinity at Kern University in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. He is author of All That Is in God and God Without Parts, end quote. An amusing quote from Doug Wilson pastor from Moscow, Idaho, a bit of an instigator, but I typically enjoy his commentary. He did a review of this book by Dolezal back in 2018, 
And I won't read his entire review of the book, but I will read just this paragraph. He says, when it comes to the main outlines of Trinitarian theology, I think the historic Catholic view gets it right. But having said this, I do want also to confess that Thomas, and here he's referring to Thomas Aquinas, and Thomists sometimes remind me of a college of June bugs trying to explain quantum physics. And so I want to acknowledge the importance of that phrase above, main outlines. We sometimes ask and try to answer questions about God that we have no business trying to answer. That right there makes sense to me. <laughs> that right there, I can, I, I, I can relate to that. Uh, yes, very yes. That is also how I feel and what I think. Sometimes we ask and try to answer questions about God that we have no business trying to answer. More on that in a bit, but first, some quotes from Goodreads that are highlighted. And interestingly enough, none of them have any likes on them. So if you've ever been on social media, and if you've ever been that person who posts things and they get no play whatsoever, no likes, no comments, nothing. Uh, James E. Dolezal knows how you feel, at least on Goodreads. Some notable quotes that did not get any likes, although I'm sure there are plenty of people who like these. They just don't need to let you know on Goodreads. Quote, one reason that change in God, no matter how small, is theologically devastating is that it would signify some alteration in his being or life, and thus, to the extent that such change occur, destabilize human confidence in his covenant promises, end quote. This is really, really important, and this gets at one of the key doctrines with regards to a theologically conservative view of God and the scriptures, that is the doctrine of immutability, that God does not change. He says this about himself. Also, he says he does not lie. And why would he? He's not a man. He doesn't have any reason to try and pull a fast one, mislead us, deceive us. He is not a man that he should lie. He doesn't need to keep us from finding something out, which we could use to try and stop him. He is just going to say, here's what it is, and that's what it's going to be. But if he changes, if he changes and you are resting in his promises, how are you going to rest in his promises? If you don't know how he might change in the future, how can you know that he's going to keep his promises? Maybe he changes his mind the way that we often do. And also too, why do we change our minds? Does he have any reason to change his mind? Like he's going to get new information that he didn't already have to begin with. Dolezal is exactly right here that any change, no matter how small, in God is theologically devastating because it destabilizes our confidence in his covenant promises. Another quote I really like. Far from suggesting some sort of impoverished isolationism, divine aseity and independence as functions of God's pure actuality actually speak of God's perfect blessedness to which nothing can be added. Now that's one we could read all day, every day and ponder and 
still be thrown for a loop by, quite honestly. That one right there. If you're if if I read that and you're hearing it and you're thinking, wow, what does that even mean? Well, join the club, right? This is a profound statement, and it's these sorts of statements which make a book titled All That Is in God, or even the whole subject, the whole field of theology, very, very challenging, very trying, very difficult. There's a lot of terms to unpack here, and then in relation to one another, understanding them all together is very difficult, very challenging. So I'll read it once more, and then if you want to hear me read it again, you're just going to have to rewind. You could do that all day if you want. Quote, far from suggesting some sort of impoverished isolationism, divine aseity and independence as functions of God's pure actuality actually speak of God's perfect blessedness to which nothing can be added. More on that as we continue on. Definitely a whole lot about that in this book, but let's move on. You can just go and rewind and play that quote on a loop if you want until kingdom come, actually, because that might be about how long it takes for us to wrap our minds around it. But next quote, God alters the revelation of himself without altering himself ontologically. And I will define that term as well as aseity. If you're not familiar with the term aseity or the concept or the field or the study of ontology, just stay tuned, sit tight. We will define those terms. Fear not. God alters the revelation of himself without altering himself ontologically. He unchangingly wills changes in his ad extra dealings with creatures without willing or experiencing a corresponding change of agency in his own intrinsic actuality. What does that mean? Really, really profound statement here. What does it mean? Well, in essence, what it means is if it seems sometimes as though God has changed because, well, now he's doing this and now he's doing some other thing, that does not mean that he has changed in his nature. That does not mean that he has changed, but he has changed the way in which he is revealing himself. He can absolutely do that. He can change the way he reveals himself to us without changing who he actually is. It's a really, really important distinction to make. And it's an easy one to miss if we transfer and project onto God too many assumptions that are native to the nature of we ourselves. God is not a man that he should lie. For that matter, God is not a man that he should change. But since he's dealing with us, <laughs> he may sometimes change the way in which he reveals himself or he may show us something new because we are finite creatures. He's infinite. But again, more on that as we go along. It's a big, big subject. This is a difficult thing to understand. Fear not. Well, do fear. Do fear God. <laughs> this is part of why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But don't fear the subject and trying to study it or looking dumb. 
we are all in the same boat on this, so long as we are wanting to know God. Another quote, it is, by the way, a truism of classical monotheism that God is not a kind of being. Whereas there is a genus human, there is no genus God, end quote. That is kind of mind-blowing, but then also, too, it's important to realize that is the essence of godness. That is, in a word, what it means to be God. He is not a kind of being. He is himself. This is why he introduces himself as I am. I am. That is a statement of self-existence. I am. I am that I am is how he refers to himself. That is literally, by the way, what the name of God means. That's what Yahweh means. I am that I am. Mind-blowing stuff and truly mind-boggling, a truly dizzying intellect. But let's jump into defining some terms because quite honestly, with theology being very often relegated to the domain of only those who are going to be pastors. I think a lot of times lay people in the mainstream are just completely out of the loop. They just they don't even know where to begin in trying to understand theology and it can be helpful to define some terms so that you understand what is being debated. Whether or not you quite fully know what to make of the debate, If you at least understand some terms, then maybe, just maybe, you can understand what is being argued one way or the other, disagreed with, or claimed, or asserted, or challenged, what have you. First of all, ontology. Again, just to reiterate, I think I gave you a brief definition, but here is the full definition from Oxford Languages. Ontology is a noun It is the branch of metaphysics dealing with the nature of being. The nature of being. So what is the best way to describe God ontologically? What is his nature? What is the nature of God and who he is in his being God? What is his godness, if you will? Another definition of ontology is a set of concepts and categories in a subject area or domain that shows their properties and the relations between them. Quote, what's new about our ontology is that it is created automatically from large data sets, end quote. So a set of concepts and categories in a subject area or domain. Here specifically, when we're talking theology, the subject is God. And the book here, of course, is All That Is In God. It's a big, big subject and mind-boggling. Now, another term that is frequently at the center of this work, which I only just recently became aware of even, is the doctrine of divine simplicity. And that sounds nice. That sounds like burn gel. That sounds like a soothing medicine (laughs) for a headache. Yeah, maybe some Advil. (laughs) 
please tell me more about this doctrine of divine simplicity. That sounds really great right now. Because otherwise, this is just really complicated and my head hurts. From Wikipedia, quote, In theology, the doctrine of divine simplicity says that God is simple without parts. The general idea can be stated in this way. The being of God is identical to the attributes of God, characteristics such as omnipresence, goodness, truth, eternity, etc., are identical to God's being, not qualities that make up that being, nor abstract entities inhering in God as in a substance. In other words, one can say that in God, both essence and existence are one and the same. Varieties of the doctrine may be found in Jewish, Christian, and Muslim philosophical theologians, especially during the height of scholasticism, although the doctrine's origins may be traced back to ancient Greek thought, finding apotheosis in Plotinus's Aeneids as the simplex, end quote. Now, what does all that mean? That doesn't sound very simple. <laughs> to boil it down, as I think I understand it, we should not see God as being comprised of parts. He is not components that you assemble, some assembly required. He is a whole, a unified being. The Lord our God is one. He is one. Now, a difficult thing with regards to this is where Christians believe, at least Orthodox, historically Orthodox Christians, historical Orthodoxy, I should say, not Eastern Orthodox, but sound doctrine-believing Christians subscribe to Trinitarian theology, which is to say that God is in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, one thing that gets brought up in all that is in God, one thing that Dolezal points out, there cannot be some separate attribute or component or person, if you will, of God, some separate characteristic of God, which we would call essence, or else we no longer have a trinity. We then have a quaternity, which is kind of a God in four persons, if you will. But perhaps a helpful way to explain it is, as Sinclair Ferguson has put it once, multiplying one times one times one. What happens if you multiply one times one times one? You get one. But there is a difference in the way that we perceive the oneness of one when you multiply one times one times one. And that perhaps if an imperfect picture or analogy or metaphor for the Trinity and for God's godness is nevertheless something approaching an explanation. But the idea behind the doctrine of divine simplicity is that we cannot separate out components or attributes of God and have them by themselves. God is whole, simple, singular, one. The Lord our God is one. And when you put it that way, it can be mind-boggling 
that he is unlimited, he is infinite in his attributes, and yet never any less in any of those attributes, though he may change the way that he shows himself to us, which again, we'll get more into as we go along here. As I try to wrap my own mind around this, perhaps you also with me. And by all means, if I'm misunderstanding any of this, misstating any of this, let me know because maybe you understand the subject better and you can explain it to me and then I will understand it better. But here's what I think I understand thus far. Aseity also talked about quite a lot in Dolezal's All That Is In God. What is aseity? Again, from Wikipedia, from the Latin, a, from, and say, self, plus iti, from, self, aseity, is the property by which a being exists of and from itself. It refers to the Christian belief that God does not depend on any cause other than himself for his existence, realization, or end, and has within himself his own reason of existence. This represents God as absolutely independent and self-existent by nature. Many Jewish and Muslim theologians have also believed God to be independent in this way. This quality of independence and self-existence has been affirmed under various names by theologians going back to antiquity, though the use of the word aseity began only in the Middle Ages. Now, an important thing here, why is this relevant? It's relevant not because we will harm God in any way if we have a misconception of him on this point, we will harm ourselves and we will not relate to God according to truth. We will not worship him in spirit and in truth if we don't understand this, if we don't believe this, if we don't embrace this. If we believe that God is dependent on any outside of himself, force or entity or essence or whatever, it introduces the problem of then making that dependent thing God instead of God being God. God's godness is mind-boggling, and yet we cannot say that he is caused by some other thing or that he is dependent on some other thing, especially when you start to hear people talking about God needs anything from us. If God needs anything from us, that makes him dependent on us. That means that he lacks something. That means that we have something over him. That is a major problem. And what you should be concerned about, again, is not that you harm God if you believe wrongly about him in this regard. You don't harm him. You're only hurting yourself. You're only hurting yourself. If you think that God needs you for something, for anything whatsoever, you don't believe in divine aseity. You don't believe that he is self-existent. If you believe that God is somehow the product of the universe, the universe is eternal, and then God somehow evolved and came into being, and then we come from God, well then the universe actually, in your view, is God, and God is subordinate to the universe. No, God created, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the uncaused cause. God is self-existent, and he is the only being in that category. No one else, 
No one else is self-existent. No one else ever will be, or ever has been, or is now. That is aseity. Another important concept, doctrine, the immutability of God. What does that mean? Immutability. Well, it's kind of like if you're watching TV and you wanted to hit the mute button on your remote and mute the TV, what are you doing? When you mute the sound, you are turning off the sound. You have control over the sound. You're able to change, more to the point, the sound. Change it from being audible to being inaudible. Change it from being on to being off. The immutability of God, according to Wikipedia, is an attribute that God is unchanging in his character, will, and covenant promises. God is unchanging. That's what immutability means. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And that's a quote from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Those things do not change. A number of scriptures attest to this idea, such as Numbers 23, 19, 1 Samuel 15, 29, Psalm 102, 26, Malachi 3, 6, 2 Timothy 2, 13, Hebrews 6, 17 to 18, James 1, 17. God's immutability defines all God's other attributes. God is immutably wise, merciful, good, and gracious. The same may be said about God's knowledge. God is almighty, omnipotent, having all power. God is omnipresent, present everywhere. God is omniscient, knows everything, eternally and immutably so. Infiniteness and immutability in God are mutually supportive and imply each other. An infinite and unchanging God is inconceivable. Indeed, it is a contradiction in definition. An infinite and changing God is inconceivable. Indeed, it is a contradiction in definition. That's mind-blowing. It is. Because we are not infinite. We are finite. We are not God. He is God. So an interesting thing, fun fact, just throwing this out there. During the High Middle Ages, this is from the Wikipedia page on theology, theology was the ultimate subject at universities being named, quote, the queen of the sciences, end quote, and served as the capstone to the trivium and quadrivium that young men were expected to study. This meant that the other subjects, including philosophy, existed primarily to help with theological thought, end quote. Here's the big question. <clears throat> How can man know and understand God? And maybe more to the point, and I think this is much more to the point, what does God want us to understand about him? Now, here is what you tell somebody. If someone says, well, I just don't think that man can know God at all. So what's the point? I think it's arrogant to say that we can know anything about God, make any claims about God, assert any confidence in our knowledge about God. Here's what you say. It's not arrogant to believe that God is capable of revealing himself how, when, to whom, and to the degree that he intends. It is not arrogant to believe that if God wants himself to be known, he will be known. To the extent that he wants himself to be known, he will be known. 
to the extent that he created us with the capacity to know him, he can be known to the extent that he wants to be known, he will be. But that is also to say, if he hides some things from us because we cannot know them, because he doesn't want us to know them, for whatever purpose, for whatever plan he has in mind, whatever he intends, if he does not want to be known, by golly, we will not know him. And that's a sobering thought as well. It's an encouraging thought, and it should make us want to study, but it's also a humbling thought, and it's a sobering thought. So a couple of passages I want to share with you that pertain here that came to mind as I'm reading this book, which I would recommend. I really, really would. I think it will give you a headache, but that doesn't mean that you should avoid it. That doesn't mean you should skip it. That doesn't mean you should just check out. I think this is an important thing, and it is humbling. But then what do we read? What does God say? He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if this book, this subject of theology humbles us, well, then there's a blessing there. He gives grace to the humble. We should want to be humble. But consider these passages in relation to the subject. Maybe they'll put a little bit of a pep in your step, give you some optimism about the subject. First of all, Exodus 33, 12 through 23 in the English Standard Version. Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And Yahweh said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. End quote. Now, Dalazal, he brings this to bear in all that is in God. And I really, really appreciate that he brings this to bear because I think this is at the core not only of studying theology rightly, that we would understand this about God and about ourselves, I think it's also the way in which we can approach the subject without becoming conceited, puffed up, without being erroneous, without getting carried away, without getting overly discouraged and just throwing up our hands and saying, oh, I can't know anything about God. If I can't know everything, I can't know anything. It's not all or nothing. It really, really is not. But it will not be all. It, it's not all or nothing, but it will not be all. You will not 
know God fully, you cannot see God's face and live. He is too overwhelming. Even just to study him and to ponder in your mind his attributes, his nature, his godness, if you will. I love that term just in one word right there, his godness, the ontology of our creator, of the Lord. For you to even study it is overwhelming, much less to know him fully. We just can't. We just can't and we won't, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek and pursue because there is a blessing in such. Another passage that comes to mind, or should I say chapter, is 1 Corinthians 13 in the English Standard Version. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, Paul writes, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Consider also Job 42, 1 through 6. This is Job answering Yahweh after having been corrected, having been addressed. Job spends the majority of the book named after him in the Old Testament asking why, 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 why me, why God, why, oh, why did you even make me to begin with if this was going to happen to me couldn't you have just let me be stillborn? And this actually, by the way, goes back to our subject in our last episode, talking about pain and suffering and what the purpose and the point of it is and what we should do about it. And should we try over hard to avoid pain to the point that we avoid life itself? God forbid. God has a purpose for our life, even if there is pain and toil and suffering in it. You trust the good Lord's purpose, even when you don't see it, even when you don't know it. But Job 42, 1 through 6. Then Job answered Yahweh and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So a couple of things, real quick, high-level conclusions to leave you with. And I cannot, I cannot summarize this book adequately because all that is in God is truly 
you have a dizzying intellect type content and material. Just read it. I'm recommending you read it, but I want to give you these encouragements before you do. And also, I want to say, I think this is the resolution that gives me the spiritual, intellectual, mental, emotional <laughs> equivalent of an Advil. Ecclesiastes 12.13 makes it clear. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. It's not to know God fully and to understand him fully, even as we are fully known and understood by God. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments, according to Ecclesiastes 12.13. So also, Micah 6.8, he has shown us what is good, as we read there, what does the Lord require of us? Not to understand and know him fully, even as we are fully known and understood by him. What does the Lord require of us? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with him. That requires studying his word. That requires understanding what it is that he has told us about himself to the best of our abilities in proportion to the grace that has been given to us to understand and to apply. But that is an important feature here. Lastly, Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is not a burdensome thing. That is not supposed to overwhelm you and crush you like a weight. It is not a way in which you save yourself. You are not saved by works. You are saved by grace, a gift freely given from the Most High God in Christ Jesus through the death, burial, and resurrection, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. But Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It, the two go together. They are inseparable. If you love Christ, you will keep his commandments. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. So it goes without saying, and yet it doesn't go without saying in a day and age where everything goes <laughs> without saying that we don't want to be antinomian, where we are rebels, we are pagans, we are godless, we believe that God exists, we believe that God is one, you do well, that is well, that is well for you to believe that God is one. We read in the scriptures, even the demons, though, believe that God is one and shudder. So it's not enough to believe that God is one, but we have to at least believe that and not believe that he is made up of components and parts that are super glued together as, again, the Scottish minister, esteemed Scottish minister Sinclair Ferguson put it in a sermon I watched yesterday. He gave a number of years ago at a Ligonier's conference. God is not made up of components and parts that you glue together. Some assembly not required, in other words. He is not like us. He is different. That's also part of what it means that he's holy. He is set apart. He chooses to reveal himself here and there and there and here also as it pleases him in a way that we can perhaps comprehend Hopefully, those of us who have eyes to see and ears to hear, who want to come humbly. But in closing, I'll 
give you the big idea along with another encouragement to read the book. He says, the chief problem I address in this work is the abandonment of God's simplicity and of the infinite, pure actuality of his being. God is. He is not becoming God. He is God. I am that I am. So that is my review of this work in a nutshell. I cannot pretend to fully comprehend all of it, but I would commend it to you. I would recommend it. I think Dalzell does a good work here. I think he does a good service to all of us here, and it's worth studying. It's worth contemplating. There's more that could be said, but I'll leave it there. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. Wait till I get going. Where was I? You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.